Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back at you with another hardcore episode of the reality dysfunction. Today, Dr. Jerry Garcia, Vice President of Education Services, CMAR Museum and CMAR Housing, is talking with us about his passion for Chicano history, his work creating a Chicano history museum in the Pacific Northwest, and how happy he is to be back in his home state of Washington. Let's get into it. Dr. Garcia, could you tell us about CMAR Museum? Yes, I can tell you about the CMAR Museum. <laughs> Well, first of all, I came on board in uh, August of 2018, and the uh, the building had been basically created, but it remained empty. So what had to be done is the curating of the the museum itself, what we're going to showcase, etc. So, but what I want people to know is that the idea, the vision for the museum, had been in, in play for about 15 years actually, and in fact, uh, my involvement as a volunteer goes back to my Michigan days when I was at Michigan State University. In fact, that's when I was first contacted by the uh, CEO of this company, who's a Washingtonian uh, by the name of Rogelio Riojas, contacted me when I was at Michigan if I wanted to be a consultant uh, based on the the history that I had done on Chicanos uh, in the Northwest. And of course, I said, yeah, absolutely. So that must have been around 2008, 2000, yeah, around 2008. And so for a while, I was just a volunteer, giving them my ideas about what kind of history and culture we should display uh, in there. Uh, and then while, while we were doing that, kind of bring up ideas, the company here, CMAR, was trying to get funding to actually create the building, right? So it took, it took quite a few years where eventually CMAR was able to find funding and then break ground for the facility. And I always like to share this story. So we were in a place called South Park. Uh, which is in South Seattle, and it's the uh, oldest Chicano neighborhood in the Seattle area. So this is where Chicanos lived for generations, uh, and which is why the CMAR uh, Community Health Centers, when it was developed in 1978, that's why they located themselves here, because they wanted to be in the community. So then the facility, the museum, is about maybe a half a mile away from, the, from our headquarters. But where it, our museum now stands over the years, has gone through different versions of companies, uh, different entities. For example, when we broke ground, started digging into the ground, we found out that it used to be a gas station because we found gas tanks still buried. Huh. And, and that stopped the project for about a year, a year and a half, because then an environmental impact had to be done. Yeah. We had to take out the tanks, right? So we knew it was a gas station there at one time. And then um, there was a Hooters there. It used to be a Hooters. Right where the museum is located. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that. It's not us. It was there. And then, um, and then be, be, right after that, when the Hooters closed down, it became one of those card casinos. Right? So, so it was a lot of entities. And finally, what we did, uh, or CMAR, just, just bought the whole, the whole land there. And basically, we built a new building. We gutted everything that was there, and then we added a second story. And we broke ground on the museum, I believe it was in 20, 2016. Yeah, about 2016, we broke ground. The building was pretty much finished in the summer of 20, 2019. Uh, I'm sorry, 2018. 
And then finally, Rogelio, uh, my, my boss, he actually tried to recruit me about three years ago and I wasn't ready to leave academia at that time. And then finally he, in the early summer of 2018, um, as um, many people will probably recognize this line, he, he made me an offer I could not refuse. And that's why I ended up leaving academia to come work here uh, in Seattle. And so, so of course, but yeah, the, the main thing is this, that what attracted me to, to this position and leaving CMAR was that I was going to be involved in two areas that are that I have a lot of interest in, and that is education, which is my background. Uh, but here with the CMAR, uh, un unlike my past where I work with college students, now I work with middle school and high school students and some college students. Uh, then, of course, Rogelio told me he was going to uh, make me the VP of the uh, new museum, and I would oversee the museum and help in its development and curate it. And so, so then I said, okay deal done deal and so that's how i ended up coming up here to seattle and as as um, my interview here knows ernesto mereles uh, we first met when i was at michigan state university way back going back probably over 10 years easily. Back, in the, back in the day yeah so i made my rounds through academia i was in academia for 15 plus years i think this happens to a lot of people we're always kind of drawn back to our roots and yeah. So like right right now, Ernesto, you're you're in in Arizona, but oftentimes when I talk to you, you love going back to Michigan, right? <laughs> and so we're always we're, we're drawn back to where we grew up. Uh, and I remember, uh, you know, in, in many ways, Michigan State University that was my dream job, right? But I remember on many occasions I would say, I would look up into the cloudy skies of Michigan, right? And I'd say, man, I miss those wide open blue skies of Washington. And it was the same thing when I was at my job at Iowa State, right? Same thing, yeah. right? So, so I always kind of longed for home, but nothing really came up in those 15 plus years. Nothing really came up to draw me back until this position. So then uh, when I got here, the biggest job was okay, to fill a museum. It was completely empty. And so, so I didn't do it on my own. I want people to know that. I had, of course, a lot of help. We had a lot of people collaborating. We actually have a, a committee. But when it, when it came to the nitty gritty and getting your hands in the dirt, uh, just a few of us, right? And so we help collect all the items. And so, th and this is kind of important, I think, because you know, we're, I kind of look at ourselves as a kind of a grassroots a museum because easily at least half the material that we got in the museum is from the community itself. Yeah. So we went, you know, what we did long before we opened up is we went around the whole state of Washington giving uh, small town hall, town hall workshops on our museum and letting the public know what we were doing um, and then asking the community if they had items uh, that they would like to donate uh, to our museum. And so, so we had a lot of, a lot of individuals come forward and, and give us stuff. And so we're, and we're still collecting. So those people that are familiar with museums, you never stop collecting. It's an ongoing process. And, uh, and sometimes we'll get a, I like to share this story. We get a call out of the blue. Like I did uh, this time last year, I got a phone call. Actually, I got an email saying that, that there is an individual who was interested in donating an item. And I'm going to tell you the story because it's kind of funny. It was kind of like a cryptic message, and it was kind of like uh, they put me on a hunt for a treasure, a treasure hunt, right? They wouldn't tell me right away who it was. I had to make a phone call, send an email, and respond within this number of days. So the end of the story is this. Now, I'm going to tell you, though, the, how this all came about. At the end of the story, I ended up finding or being given one of our best items in the whole collection. 
and it was a 1930s mariachi outfit from Mexico wow. that a widow had saved because it was her, it was her husband, and he had collected it, a Mexicano. But the widow was a was a she was a white lady. She had married a white woman, and she didn't know what to do with it after her husband died a few years ago, and uh, she was close to just like you know throwing it away or oh. just just getting rid of it. And finally, what happened? She's an elderly lady, right? I think she's in her 80s. And one day, what happens is that she gets, uh, you know, that service that elderly people get when they uh, have to go get food. Somebody oh, comes and picks them up, yeah, yeah, and takes them to the store to go shopping. Mm -hmm. But she had that service, and the and the driver was a Mexicano. <laughs> the driver was a Mexicano, and she goes uh, to this driver. She goes, "Hey, uh, I don't even know what the guy's name was." But she, she figured that a Latino, right, Mexicano, would know what to do with this mariachi outfit. And so she asked him, she goes, hey, I got this mariachi outfit. Do you know where, where I can donate it? And this guy, I never met this guy, but this guy happened to know that we were about to open a brand new museum. And she goes, yeah, I know exactly where you can, you can donate it. There's a new museum that's opening up. And it's because we had advertised, right? So people knew about our museum. Yeah. But she goes, yeah, I know, I know this museum it's, that's brand new. It's going to open up. You should give him a call. So finally, I got this call, this cryptic message, and follow this route. So you get here, take a right and left, and then you know, it was out in the boonies, dude. Out in the boonies, man. And uh, you know, when you're a when you're a, a Chicano going out into the boonies here in Washington, yeah, you kind of your red flags go up. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was deep deep in the woods too, dude. <laughs> and so, so uh, you know, kind of kind of kind of a lot of suspicions. So I text my wife to make sure she knows where I was going to be. <laughs> and so, so I get there, knock on the door. Yeah, sure enough, this this little old lady answers the door, and she says, "Are you Jerry?" I go, "Yes." She goes, "Come on in." And uh, uh, sweetest lady you could ever meet, uh, just just nice as heck. And um, she actually ended up donating quite a few things, not just that mariachi outfit, but it was that mariachi mariachi outfit that we got. And it's it's to me, it's one of our prized possessions. But that's an example, right? That's an example of just how out of the blue we end up getting these phone calls that people want yeah. to donate to our museum. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a, it's a good, it's a, it's a interesting story, uh, the way it came about, right? And it I actually, I didn't respond right away. It took me, it took me a few weeks because I wasn't sure if it was real or not. Finally, I followed all the leads, and you know, nervous going out there into a very rural area, but but you know, in the end, everything worked out, and we got a great piece. So. So in the end, then uh, our community did quite a bit for us, uh, but then we also went out and looked for stuff ourselves as an organization. So I will say this though: there is a kind of a singular premise to our museum, and that's uh, social activism and advocacy, and make, making sure that what we display in our museum is from a social justice lens. One of the other reasons why I was very attracted to this organization is because it was Chicano students uh, from the student movement. Uh, in the 1960s that created this this company and so a lot of people find it hard to believe but it's actually true we've got all the documents to show that so it was it was a combination of metro students brown berets and community members right that all went through the student movement back in the late 60s early 70s and then a good handful of these machistas and brown berets went into the health sciences mm. and so then they saw a major need right that was being neglected and that was uh health services to the Latino community here in uh, Western Washington. So in uh, 1978, they wrote this small little grant and they got it, a federal grant, I mean, a really small one. 
but it was enough to, to open up the first clinic in South Park, uh, uh, Washington here in South Seattle in 1978. And so with one clinic in 78 to 2020, it has grown to over, uh, I think, 110 clinics. Wow. Last year, uh, we served 300 plus patients. Uh, and so, you know, when you get into healthcare, you, you start, uh, and it's, oh, this was all brand new filter to me, by the way, yeah. as, as uh, Todd knows. I'm a historian by training. As far as you can be from healthcare as you can, right? As a Chicano historian. <laughs> but there's a connection, right? There's a connection to all this that I'll eventually explain to, to the audience. But the, the point I was driving at is that many of the individuals that created this, this organization were farm workers, farm work, migrant, migrant children, right? They ended up uh, being the first students going to the University of Washington, right? So there's a, there's a great legacy here. Uh, that created that created the uh, organization, and they're the ones that are getting very close to retiring. Uh, there's about four or five from that era uh, that have been with the company since day one, right? And so they're getting close to retirement, but they're the they're the founders of this organization. And one day, our CEO is one of those students I was talking about. He was also a machista in a brown beret. He's been the first and only director, um, executive director of this organization. One day, I asked him what impact Mecha or the Brown Braves had on the establishment of this organization. Um, and he was very, you know, I thought he was going to say the Brown Braves because of their platform in regards to the community. But he said, no, it was Mecha. That it was actually Mecha that was really kind of the driving force behind the idea of uh, serving the community. Uh, and so, so again, this uh, group of individuals, right, they put into practice a lot of things that a lot of us just preach. Yeah, and so they they actually put it into practice, and now this company has uh, almost three thousand employees, and so it's uh, it's pretty amazing. But you know, with with that, you get the bureaucracy, you get some of the other things that come with being such a big big organization. But then you also get things like this beautiful museum. It's the right. it's the first one. It's the first Chicano museum in the Pacific Northwest, right? And so so through that through that vision that the uh, founders had, and they see the connection, right? They see that understanding who you are as a Chicano Latino, having a strong self-identity is part of the overall idea. It's kind of like the holistic approach to healthcare, right? That that is, that is part of it, right? You know, it's not only is, you know, be having access to healthcare, having access to preventive health, uh, having a, a roof over your head, all those are important to having uh, good health in, in, in someone's life. But then so is a self, strong self-identity, knowing where your community comes from, and that's where our museum plays a, a major role uh, in promoting this kind of holistic approach to health. Yeah. When you told me that you had taken this job and that you were working on building this museum up, I, I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, knowing, you know, your uh, lifetime commitment to to history, but not, not just to history, but to, you know, Chicano history. And right. so that was the part that was the part that I, I thought was really cool. Now that you've built this museum or that you, I mean, obviously, like you just said a minute ago, I mean, museums are something they're ongoing, right? They're, they're constantly right. in creation. How, how do you see the, the importance of the museum itself in terms of, you know, establishing a, a continuity within like a historical narrative? You know, so much of our time as colonized people is spent trying to prove that we belong somewhere. I'm fascinated by this this project 
of the museum. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk yeah. about that a little bit. Well, that's a good question. I mean, if you ever get a chance to go to come to our museum, one of the things you'll notice is that we begin in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and there's a reason for that. You know, when we were debating not only the name of our museum, but what was going to be the content of the museum, there were some folks that wanted to include the colonial era, mm. right? Of course, the, those of us know the history pretty well were able to shoot that down, right? Because we did not want to portray colonialism uh, at all in our museum, uh, colonization. So, so then our, our museum is a work in progress still. Uh, eventually, one of the things we will showcase is the some elements of the indigenous past or the indigenous people that live here today uh, in Washington uh, who come from various indigenous tribes from Mexico who came up here, right, in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. So that those communities are definitely going to be displayed in our museum. So, so this whole idea of uh, settler colonialism, colonization, we completely remove that from our from our narrative. If we ever do bring it up, we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll come up in a very kind of critical critical way, critiquing and criticizing settler colonialism. But we wanted people to uh, initially do two things, focus in on the Chicano Latino experience. And then we started off with the, the Chicano experience first, because it was Chicanos that, that came here, a large enough number that created a critical mass in the 1930s and 1940s to begin to, begin to establish communities. You mean Washington State? Yeah, I mean Washington. State. Yeah, yeah, absolutely Washington, right? And so, so in the end, then it's it's the um, Tejanos, right? I mean, the majority were Tejanos, coming from Texas, and you know, a lot of us know the history of the movement of Tejanos in the early part of the 20th century, going to many places, and you know, Todd knows very well that history of Michigan, where a lot of Tejanos went to the state of Michigan, Ohio, Iowa. You know, all over the place, and Washington is one of those locations as as well. Yeah. And so we tell about the Chicano Me Me Mexicano experience right now. So this is what we call Phase One in our museum. Uh, phase Two, which is going to happen in about three or four years, is there's actually a we're going to build south of our of our uh, current museum. There's actually a wall that separates uh, the museum from our HR department. And unfortunately, we're going to have to relocate our HR department because the phase two is going to go into their to their location and uh and phase two is when we're going to tell the broader latino latinx experience okay uh, in our museum right and so that's when we'll bring in additional stories and additional experiences and so then when you look at the current exhibits that we have we broke up into themes right in regards to not only our history but our contributions that we have made to the development of the state of, of the state of Washington, right? And so it's uh, not only in labor. I mean, we, obviously we could we could have focused on labor, just on labor if we wanted to, because of all we've done in regards to labor. But we didn't want people to to, to look at us and our museum and say, oh, all, all they were were workers, yeah. right? So we wanted them to also see that we were a vibrant community, right? So we also have uh, sections in our museum that tell people that. We weren't just workers, but we were a community that developed over time, yeah. and that uh, we had um, activities that had nothing to do with work. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. so we so we showcase all that, and while we're while we're showcasing that, we're also showcasing our culture. You know, for example, we have uh, numerous images of uh, Vora, Vora's 
batismos, right? Quinceañeras, right? And one of the pictures that I love a lot in our museum is just is just two guys at a bar drinking a beer, right? So we have just people bonding together, just uh, enjoying their company. But that's what we call community development, right? That's how you develop communities over time, is, is that they establish themselves in a community and they begin to spread their culture and values in those communities. And those are depicted in, in our museum. And then we have, you know, we also have a section just on recreation, right? That, you know, Latinos had, uh, had recreation. You know, as, as funny as that, that might sound, I think when the general population, the mainstream population looks at us, they still look at us just primarily as laborers, yeah. beast of burdens. Yeah. Right? You know, they don't, they don't see us as a community. They don't see us, you know, playing in sports. Uh, they don't see us, you know, being, a, being given awards mm. uh, for the things that we did in our, in our communities. And so we wanted to definitely showcase that as well. I think the most striking thing in our museum is the, uh, the activism that our community has been doing uh, since day one until the very present, right? So we have a strong, strong exhibit on community activism in our, in our museum from the uh, United Farm Workers of California coming into Washington, right? From the United Farm Workers of Washington State emerging out of that, yeah. right? to the community challenging the lack of farm worker housing yeah. here in the state of Washington. So we have all that being depicted. And so, so that I think it's important, I think, for people to understand that, that when you open a museum like this, is that we would have neglected a part of history if all we shown was the success stories. Yeah. Because long before success happened, now we had struggles, la lucha, as they, as they say. And those struggles are depicted, right, uh, in our museum. And so we want people to understand that nothing was ever given to us. Now we fought tooth and nail uh, for everything that, that we've achieved here uh, in the state of Washington. So, so I think that really resonates in our, in our museum. We have a, we pay a tremendous amount of homage to Cesar Chavez, Dolores, Dolores Huerta, Martin Luther King as uh, individuals that helped move the social justice forward yeah. uh, down to local leaders here in the state of Washington. Right. So, so then uh, my, my CEO, who, of course, as I mentioned before, was a machista and brown beret at the University of Washington, lived through that time period, right? He was one of those students that we often read about in our, in our history books of the student movement. So he's actually one of those individuals. And one of the things that he'll never forget is the importance of the uh, black student movement at the University of Washington and how they, how they, how they forced a strong coalition on campus. So Chicanos and the Black Student Union had a very, very strong coalition on, on the University of Washington campus. And I always like to share that story because I think people of color will recognize it, right? Is that when we look at the first Chicanos recruited to the uh, University of Washington, which was in 19, 1968, actually, it wasn't admission counselors that went out recruiting for Chicanos. It was a Black Student Union. Yeah. The Black Student Union went to the Chicano communities in the in the agricultural rural areas and recruited the first ten Chicanos to go to the University of Washington. That's a that's a pretty powerful and amazing story. When you leave it up to students to go out and recruit people of color, right? But the Black Student the Black Student Union understood the power behind that though. They understood that they recruited more people of color, that their voice would become even stronger on campus. Yeah. Of course, and that became true. I mean, they, they forged strong coalitions 
And that's how they ended up becoming very, very powerful on campus in the late 60s, early 1970s. My boss would argue that Chicanos were the strongest group on campus. It's pretty amazing. And this story is kind of amazing also because those first 10 students in 60, 68 became 30 in 69. Mm. So, so it grew a little bit. But uh, what's amazing to me when I hear this story over and over is that all these Chicanos were migrant children. Yeah. Their, their parents worked in the fields. They worked in the fields. So they, they, they didn't have a lot of knowledge about first college. They didn't have hardly any knowledge about politics or how you mobilize a community. Right? They learned that there at the University of Washington from other students. Right? And then from the movement that was ongoing, the modern civil rights movement, as well as the emerging Chicano uh, movement during that time period. And they, they jumped at it right away. And there's another organization here in Washington that, to be quite honest, I think people know this organization more than CMAR. It's called it Centro de la Raza. Mm. Right? And, and uh, it was also started by students from the University of Washington. And so, so one of the things that I like to look at, and again, uh, if there's any scholars listening, future students listening, I think a great project in the very near future is examining the two organizations that are still around from that student movement from the University of Washington. That is in Centro de la Raza, located on, on Beacon Hill in Seattle, and CMARC Community Health Centers here in South Park. Right? So they, they emerged out of the civil rights movement and 40, 45 years later, they're still standing in very strong organizations. Beacon Hill is kind of a famous neighborhood in Seattle too, isn't it? It's the African-American neighborhood. Okay. That's where right. primarily a, a lot of African-Americans historically have lived. And, and still there's a strong population of uh, African-American communities uh, in, in that area. And that's where they had some of the, uh, I forget the names, names of the schools, but some very famous uh, high schools. Uh, Jimi Hendrix went to high school in that area, mm. and so so there are a lot of uh, famous people that went to that went to school uh, in that in that region. One of the things I want to see is how how we're being looked at three or four years from now because we're brand new, October 2019, and uh, we've been getting a lot of attention because we're brand new and people are curious about us. Uh, we've been getting a lot of press, a lot of stories, uh, but I want to see what people are thinking about us four or five years down the road if they still think that. You know, we're a good museum. We're getting a lot of press, as I mentioned. We're the, we're the first one, the first Chicano Latino museum in, in the whole region. So people are, are happy that this voice now is, is out there in a museum because here in the Seattle area, you got museums almost for, every, almost for every group. The one that was missing was for Chicanos. You say that you're like the first one in that region, but I mean, other than the Smithsonian or I know, but even in L.A., I mean, they have exhibits at larger museums, yeah. right, yeah. that specifically have to do with Chicanos. I know that last summer yeah. we went to, I want to say it was the Fippin, but I don't think it was the Fippin. But we went to this one where they had, like, a display of one of the newspapers. They had, like, just photos. I forget which newspaper it was, too. But it was, even though I can totally not recall the name of it right now, it was amazing. But it wasn't a Chicano museum it was right. a big museum right. that had a whole bunch of stuff about white people in it and it had this one room yeah. that was about chicanos yeah. so i mean are you guys the first in that region or are you first in the country no we're not the first in the country and I'll, okay. I'll give you a couple examples but okay but what is surprising is that california does not have a freestanding chicano museum 
I mean, that's that's pretty shocking. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> you know, What's going on out there, you guys. Come on, man. Exactly. Kalifas, get it, so, get it together. So, so there's a, a Chicano museum in in San Antonio. There's one. There's one in New Mexico, Albuquerque. One in Chicago. All right. So, so I think those those three there were the first. Were the first, and there's a small one, and I've been to this one. I don't know, Todd. Maybe you went to it. I can't remember. But there's one in Omaha, Nebraska. No, I've I've actually I've just driven by Omaha. I've never I never <laughs> I never stopped in Omaha. Yeah, well, but, yeah. If you ever stop, man, go check out that. It's, it's a little one, right? But but it's but it's there in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, you know who took me there was um, that cat that used to work at Michigan State, Rochin. You know oh, Rochin? yeah, Dr. Rochin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget his first name. Uh, Will. Will Rochin. Okay. Yeah, yeah because because he was uh, he was working at Nebraska for for a moment when I went there for a conference, a little museum that he got there in Omaha, Nebraska, dedicated to the Chicano experience in Nebraska. Yeah. So. That's cool. Anyway, you're frozen in this big smile. I'm looking at this big Todd smile. Oh, that's good, man. It's better than the stupid look I see <laughs> on my face sometimes when it freezes. Yeah, well, see, San Antonio doesn't San Antonio doesn't surprise me. And Albuquerque doesn't really right. surprise me either. I mean, th- neither of those places. And the, the one in Chicago you're talking about, are you right. talking about the art museum, right? The one that's down in Pilsen? Yeah, it, uh, they recently changed their name, but they used to be called the Mexican-American art and culture museum something like that yeah yeah i've uh, been there i've been there many times there there exhibits for anybody that's listening if you've never been to chicago or you're planning on going to chicago you have to go to the um yeah. to the mexican-american fine arts museum there yeah it's yeah. it's in pilsen it's amazing and uh the artwork is is incredible okay that's cool i next time i go to san antonio i'll make sure that i that i hit up that that museum so I think one of the things that makes it very difficult for people to create a freestanding museum, it's not cheap, man. It costs a lot of damn money, right? And and you got to find a funding source. 90, 98% of the funding for CMAR came from CMAR. So CMAR pretty much self-funded this uh, this museum. It got help. It got, you know, the other 2% roughly came from uh, the state, right? And other smaller little grants. Uh, but uh, we're a... Um, and, and this is, you know, we this is public information. We shared this a long time ago. Our museum cost about seventeen million dollars uh, to create. Wow. And so yeah, so that's you know that's that's a that's a lot of money, man. So it's very difficult for people to come up with that kind of money uh, to create something like this. And I think that's been one of the things, unfortunately, in our community is that you know capital just hasn't been available, or Chicanos have had access to this kind of capital to create. You know, like, for example, there should be one of the biggest Chicano museums in the country in California. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. Given, its, given its history uh, and everything that uh, it's, it's gone through. Given the number of people there, too, who yeah. are actually quite wealthy. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. you know, Eva Longoria. I mean, yeah. this is a person who has a lot of money. Uh, maybe not seventeen million dollars, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, but she can, you know, donate something, right? She or, or she has access to people who actually do have seventeen million dollars. Right. You know, I mean, there's right. just, yeah, there's a there's a lot of actors. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, look at like what Cheech is trying to do exactly. in terms of creating a you know a private 
a private art collection, art collection you know, yeah. and then you know farming that out but i mean there's right. just yeah um, no I, I i hear what you're saying i think the fact that a group of people would put that much money into chicano history i mean to me is a very exciting but i think it also sends a very clear message to the youth in our community that their history is materially worth something and that once you even get beyond just the like the price tag that gets put on everything that that's in our society that um you know the preservation of history understanding where we've been in terms of where it is that we need to arrive to is also super important i mean it's just it says something about the worth of who we are as a people and our accomplishments that in our society goes far beyond just you know saying chicano power i mean that's you're going to spend 17 million dollars to build a museum i don't care what anybody says that's fucking chicano power right there right. yeah that's good that's good you know, and, and the other you know the other thing i want your audience to know is that unlike the overwhelming majority of museums especially here in the Seattle area, we don't charge anything. Our museum is free uh, to the public, right? And, and, that, and that's by design, because we wanted, we wanted our people to be able to come here with their families and not have to pay, because we're, we're really talking still about a working class uh, community. And to have a family of five or six come and everybody have to pay something, well, it's prohibited, right? Yeah. And they won't come. Yeah. So we wanted to be sure that uh, our community came to our museum, so it is, uh, it's free. It's free, and you know, there's museums in Seattle that charge 20, 25 bucks a head to get in. So I think that's also, without people actually saying it, I think that's one of the things that people like about our museum is that is that we cater to our community, right? And uh, before this COVID nineteen crap came around, we were averaging uh, about five hundred people a month to our museum. Wow! And and, uh, and the majority were students from middle school all the way to college students that were coming. Uh, for their classes, they're coming for our program because we develop we develop a programming. So especially for middle school students, when they come, we don't want them just wandering in the museum. We create an actual an educational program for them uh, while they're there. It's a three-hour program, so they actually have some activities to do. For example, we sit them down for 45 minutes and they watch um, a video on the Chicano movement. Right? Most of them never even heard of it. Right? No. So they get that, and then we put them uh, these youngsters. We put them on a treasure hunt. You know, in our museum, so we give them items to look for, and, they, and they're in the museum, but they got to go throughout the museum and look for these items. There's one other activity I just can't remember right now, but yeah, so so and we we have a a little more sophisticated version of that for high school students. Uh, so so yeah, and so we were getting a, just a lot of schools were very interested in our museum because they they understood that we're 13 percent of the population here in the state of Washington, which is almost a million people. Yeah but most people don't know anything about us and it's, that's pretty amazing they don't know anything about the chicano community so when schools in the seattle area heard that we were opening the museum we just got inundated with a request to come into our museum and so you know we're getting uh, classes of 20 to 65 students coming in uh, on a daily basis coming to check out the museum so we were we were on a pretty good roll until until march right yeah and everything shut down because of the pandemic well it can't it can't last forever man yeah i hope anyways that's uh yeah 
All right. You know what, uh, Jerry, we're kind of coming to the end of, of the hour that, that we have set aside. I was just wondering, though, bro, because I know that, um, you know, I know you're a writer and I know you got one in your back pocket. But so what's what's the what's the book project you're working on right now? Because you're you're immersed in the history, man. I mean, this must just be like this must be yeah, like Candyland to you. Yeah, it is. And here in Washington, man, I mean, uh, that's a good question. Ty. I can go on on and on. But and again, I'm going to I'm going to throw out some nuggets for the scholars that are watching, right? Nothing's been done on a Chicano movement here in the state of Washington. Mm. Nothing. Nothing published anyway. There's nothing on the Chicano movement, nothing on the farm workers movement here, here in the state of Washington. Nothing on the Triato groups that were here that parallel with Triato Campesino, right? Nothing's been done on, for example, the attempts to create Kaunikak here in 1969, 1970, 71 in the Yakima Valley to educate middle school and high school students in, in Chicano studies and Chicano education. So, so all of that is, is material. There's material that are buried away in the archives and nobody's actually written about it, right? So, so when I always tell people, because I get this question quite a bit, I always tell people that there's only so much me and a couple of people can do. Yeah, in regards yeah. to writing our history, yeah. that we need help. We need help from from emerging scholars, young people, you know, who are just starting out as undergrads or graduate students. That that if you're into Chicano studies, and I hope people are, that the Pacific Northwest in general is open, right, in regards to uh, studying the community going back uh, the 20th century. So as far as Chicanos and Chicanas using Chicano studies to examine our experience here in the Northwest. There's only been a handful. I mean, you know, I got a, I got a couple pieces. I got an anthology that, that you're in, by the way, Todd, if you remember that anthology oh, yeah, yeah. that we did up here, you know, and so you, you, have, you have a great piece on Michigan. And every once in a while, you know, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but every once in a while, something will come my way and they'll say that, hey, I'm using your book in my, in my classes, right? It's like I, I got a message from a UW professor that's using our, that's using our book, really, using yeah. our book in, at the UW, right? So... And, and, you know, it's because two reasons. One, I, I think that's a pretty good anthology, but also because there's nothing else, man, right? Yeah. There's nothing else that's been published, you know, on Chicanos in the, on the borderlands, yeah. as, as we've discussed many times. So, so yeah, so I think the, the book project right now that I'm probably going to put out is um, on the, on the uh, farm workers movement here in the state of Washington. Nice. That's probably the, the book that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out next. Yeah. Um, so, but I go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I know that when I started working for the UFW in 97, they had just wrapped up the Chateau Saint-Michel campaign right. that was going on up there. And I met a whole bunch of the, the organizers from uh, Washington. Yeah. I think the one sister, her name was Rosalinda uh, Gein. Yeah, Gein. That's it. Nice lady. She was yeah. sharp. She was a good organizer. Yeah. Did you come to Washington to help organize for that? No, no, it was by the time I got uh, hired, I was hired to work on the strawberry campaign, the first strawberry campaign. And, but yeah, by the time I got there, Chateau Saint-Michel campaign was over and they were trying to negotiate uh, contracts. I think that there were also, there yeah. were some mushroom workers up there that yeah. they were trying to do some work with too. Right. That's going to be a big chapter in my book is that campaign because 
Um, it's the first it's the first union contract for farm workers in the state of Washington. But you know the and again I'm gonna I try to take too long to I'll, I'll wrap it up with this kind of one minute summary of this whole campaign is that uh, the vision was beautiful, right? Because what they attempted to do back in this time period, well, I'll take it back. So so we should, what, what happened was the Chateau Saint Michel boycott ended in 1995. And then about two years later, another campaign emerged in which the UFW aligned. And think about this time. You know the history. Made an allegiance, made an alignment with the Teamsters. Yeah. To campaign together yeah. here in the state of Washington. I mean, that's the nemesis of the you know, yeah. UFW. Yeah. But in the late 1990s, they came together because the UFW was going to organize the field workers. Yep. And the team show was gonna was gonna was gonna organize the warehouse workers. The warehouse workers. I actually, when that happened, I was working for the UFW. There you go. Yeah. So this sounds familiar to you. That we had kind of the same thing happen. No, not not the same thing. We had a thing with Teamsters in Detroit. There was an event that was going on that was called Action Motown, and it was in support of uh, all of the newspaper workers that had been okay. fired during the merger between the Detroit Free Press and the, and the Detroit News, somehow our little UFW office got stuck in this, um, in this moment where uh, James Hoffa Jr. was going to volunteer to go with us to the terminal market in Detroit to get, um, right. to get vendors to sign the pledge card saying that they wouldn't that they wouldn't sell Driscoll strawberries, right? And so, our, you know, and our office was on Verner Highway. It was about maybe a little, little less than two miles away from Teamster International Headquarters uh, over <laughs> on, um, yeah. oh, I can't, I'll remember the name of the street. Our boss called and he was just like, you can't, that motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> There's no fucking way that he's going to, you know, and all this other kind of shit. And I mean, I really liked my, the guy that was my boss. I really respect him. I respect him to this day. But yeah. uh, we hung up that phone and we were like, oh, yeah, sure. Sure, Mr. Hoffa. <laughs> I was just like, okay. First, he was like, you got to go tell him. And I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go tell Jimmy Hoffa Jr. that he can't come with us. I'm, I'm just not going to do that. So. I understand the history. I understand the whole thing. But I also understand that, you know, this guy's office is two miles away from mine. And, uh, you know, they break heads for a living. So I was just like, whatever, whatever. Nice to meet you, Mr. Hoffa. <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was an interesting moment. Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, I got a, I already started. I mean, that, that part, I've already kind of written up in a good draft. I learned a lot, man, uh, about the Teamsters yeah. uh, do, doing that. You know, good and bad, right? So, you know, one of the things that, that I came to recognize is that there was a group of Teamsters known as the Teamsters Democratic Union that were trying to reform yeah. uh, Teamsters, yeah. right? They eventually, they, I think they eventually floundered, unfortunately. But they were they were part of uh, what was going on in Washington. The Democratic, the Teamsters Democratic Union uh, was in full swing when they came up to Washington. Yeah. Right? It, was, it was that kind of, that kind of arm of the Teamsters that was trying to help out the, the farm workers and trying yeah. to, you know, I guess, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, trying to um, not erase the past, but make up for the past. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because yeah. of all the bullshit that they pulled in California, right? It actually killed, right? It actually killed people in California. 
their their headquarters, TDU headquarters, was in Detroit. It was at was the labor, yeah, the Labor Notes yeah. office down on Michigan Avenue. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, so there's a like I said, uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, interesting history that will tell the Chicano experience here yeah. in Washington by doing some of this stuff. And then again, you know, one of the things I also also say is that Washington's not alone. There's a lot of other states that have neglected the Chicano the Chicano field, the Chicano studies, right? Chicano history. Right. And I'm sure a lot more can be done in Michigan. Um, oh yeah. Very similar to to Washington. So yeah. So so again, I've always I've always harped on this idea that we got to tell our stories not only for our communities but also to put our stories in the national narrative in regards to the Chicano movement. Because right now, as you know, it's dominated by California and the Southwest, uh, and it still still is. Right. And so so what I I like to see is more individuals coming out studying more Chicano communities uh, beyond California and Southwest, such as Michigan, such as the Dakotas, Montana, Washington, uh, even Oregon. I mean, even Oregon and Idaho. And that way, that way, the, uh, the voice has become part of not the outliers, but part of the national narrative of our Chicano movement. That's all we have for now. I want to thank Dr. Garcia for taking the time to talk with me about the CMAR Museum and the big plans they have to expand the work they've started in preserving Chicano history in the Pacific Northwest. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. In the meantime, stay home, stay safe, and wash your hands. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, rasa, rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.